Hello? <laughs> Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Hebrews chapter 5 again. As adorable as little kids can be and are basically all the time, wouldn't it actually be a tragedy if they never grew up? If they just stayed in that infant or little child stage and never grew it. We don't want them to grow up and go away, but at the same time, it would be a tragedy if they never did. If they just stayed, can you imagine how unhealthy that would be? How long could that possibly last? That's the situation in a spiritual sense for the audience in Hebrews. For the first time this morning, the author comes right out and says what the critical problem is in the congregation. Why? What, what the problem is, they, they have no assurance of their salvation because they've yet to fully embrace the sufficiency of Jesus for them. That's why they're drifting. That's why their hearts are hardening in unbelief, leading them, as he said, to fall away from the living God. They don't have ever increasing faith in the sufficiency of Jesus. They refuse to rest. They still think their salvation has to be secured by their works. That's why they're being tempted to return to the old covenant system of obedience to the law. That's why they want to go back under the old covenant priesthood. And the author calls this out as an unwillingness to grow up, an unwillingness to mature. And it concerns him, concerns him very deeply because the sufficiency of Jesus is the source of our salvation. We don't move further away from the sufficiency of Jesus as we grow in our faith. We don't move further away from that. In fact, growth is, growth is believing more and more and more in the sufficiency of Jesus for us. The sufficiency of Jesus is our high priest whose sacrificial gift of his own perfect life has purchased eternal salvation for all who believe in him is what the author calls solid food for the believer. And maturing people eat solid food. Milk is for babies. Milk is for infants. And milk, in the author's metaphor here, is continuing to believe, as we all naturally do, as we all naturally come into the faith thinking that we must contribute something to our salvation by our gifts, by our sacrifices, by our works, instead of feasting on the sufficiency of Jesus, that belief we naturally have to secure salvation by our works, that's milk. That's how babies in the faith think. And we should be moving away from that, growing past it into maturity. That is, when I say maturity, complete confidence in Jesus Christ for our salvation. That's maturity. All roads lead to the same place. If we believe in Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of our sins, our justification, our standing before God, if we believe him, we are saved. But if we do not, we are not. And their desire there to, that they're toying with to return to the old covenant system for their salvation is causing the author to be worried about their faith. So he actually stops here in 5.11 to interrupt the flow of his argument that he started in 5.1 about how Jesus is not a high priest in the order of Aaron, but he is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
he stops that to not only issue another warning to his readers, but also to give them the assurance that only will come by resting from their works for salvation and trusting in Christ alone for it. He wants to keep teaching them about the sufficiency and perfection of Jesus' high priesthood, but he realizes here, this is very interesting, he realizes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I don't know if they're ready for this yet, he's thinking. I don't know if you're ready for this, he is saying to them. Your drift back towards the old covenant system means you still think you have to do something to secure your salvation. The sufficiency and perfection of Jesus as our high priest will fall on deaf ears if you're still convicted and convinced that salvation is secured by works. I can't go on about how wonderful Jesus is if you still think you actually secure your salvation by your works. To believe that what Jesus did for us as a high priest To believe that that is not fully sufficient for all of our salvation from start to finish leads us in our hearts to crucify him again and again and again, bringing contempt in our hearts, bringing contempt on what he did by that refusal to trust his one-time sacrifice as fully sufficient, as once and for all. And there is no salvation for those who hold Jesus in contempt. We must believe in him to be saved. The hope Jesus gives us as our high priest is the anchor that holds our souls firm before God forever, and we must believe in him. So if you're able, would you stand with me? I'm going to read just the end of this passage as we will then work our way through it. I'm going to begin at 6.17 and read through verse 20. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, that's salvation, we who have fled for refuge have this, or might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your word. Your son, Jesus Christ, overshadow me this morning that he might speak to us through this book. I ask and pray that everyone would be able to listen and understand and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So let's pick up the author's argument here in 5.11. What a, what a text. The, the first part of chapter 5, if you remember a little from last week, began to teach us about how Jesus is the high priest of his people, those who believe in him because he offered up his perfect obedience to God through his suffering, because he offered up perfect gifts in reverence to God throughout his life, and because he offered up the perfect sacrifice to God by dying on the cross, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, that is, in Hebrews, have faith in him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that phrase is important in 510, Because in 620, the author is going to bookend everything from here to there with that same phrase. 
It's, that's an inclusio, right? It, it's everything in between that is bookended. So this is all part of the same argument. There's one main point here. Let's look at 5.11 to 6.2. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Or I'm sorry, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So he wants to go on again. He wants to go on about how Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but they've become dull of hearing, right? They've gotten so caught up in the idea of going back under the law, back under a priesthood like Aaron's where they bring gifts and sacrifices to God through that high priest, that the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus doesn't really appeal to them, right? It's, it's laborious to them. It might sound nice. They might agree with it, but they aren't trusting in it. It isn't pulling them closer. It falls on mostly deaf ears. They're dull of hearing. And they've been a part of the church long enough, the author is implying, that it should sound wonderful to them. It should be what they want to eat. They should be able to teach it. In fact, it should be the centerpiece of their spiritual diet, but they're still drinking milk. He's referring to them. When he says, for everyone who lives on milk, right? Because I'm talking about you, he says, because they want to go back to the law as Hebrews bears out. Like they're little children in need of a guardian, as Paul will put it in Galatians. Solid food, that is in context, the doctrine of Christ as our sufficient high priest, that's for the mature. What is Christian maturity? It is a growing reliance on Jesus as our sufficient high priest. Just like our body requires more formidable food as we mature physically, as we go spiritually, we need the sufficiency of Jesus put in front of us to feast on more. We need it more as time goes on. We rely on him more. We love his sufficiency for us more, not less. We don't get tired of it. We don't get tired of hearing about it. Right? It's our diet. It's the goal we're all trying to get to. You don't move on from it. The goal is to actually believe with all our hearts what Jesus accomplished for us in the gospel, that he's sufficient for us. Every ounce of Christian doubt and struggle comes from not believing that enough. For our salvation, our hope, our growth, even for our discernment at the end of verse 14. Do you know how we practice distinguishing good from evil? Do you know how our ability to do that gets sharpened? Not by trying harder to know and obey the law. Not by looking at yourself. Everything that gets cranked out in evangelicalism, the focus is you. Right? It's how you can do this, how you can be a better this, how you can be a real this, how you can be a strong this, how you can be a sufficient this. Nobody talks about Jesus. It's ridiculous. 
You know how our ability to distinguish good from evil gets sharpened? Not by trying harder to know and obey the law, but by relying on the sufficiency of Jesus for our forgiveness, to be our righteousness, to be our substitute, to be our high priest. The more I believe and dig into his sufficiency as a high priest for me, the more likely it is I will increasingly know the difference between good and evil. The closer I get to that which is most holy, which is Jesus, which means I must at some point look away from myself, the more likely it is I will be able to see what is not righteous. We see that in the text. We might think... We, we might think that believing you're responsible to contribute something to your salvation is what would keep you on the straight and narrow. Right? That's what, that's what really keeps you from doing evil. But keep you more alert. Because you're more concerned than others about messing up. You're the one playing it safe. Right? But hear God's word. Hear God's word. Focusing on ourselves and our performance does not train us through constant practice to increasingly recognize the difference between good and evil. It is powerless to do that. You could put us in a garden with no sin nature, we will still break the law. Right? When will we learn we aren't capable of distinguishing between good and evil with wisdom? When will we believe the Bible? That doing that actually makes us, as verse 13 teaches, unskilled in the word of righteousness. Unskilled. Not more skilled. Unskilled. Focusing on our performance rather than the performance of our high priest will only give us constant practice in how to rely on ourselves to make ourselves righteous. We must believe God's word and what God's word says is able to accomplish discernment. So the author closes chapter 5 with this thought. He says, I would like to go on in detail about the sufficiency of Jesus as our high priest, but you're still stuck in thinking that you need to maintain eternal life by your gifts and sacrifices rather than those of Jesus. And that is how babies think. That's what he's saying. Solid food, which is what you need, what I need, is the constant assurance of the effectiveness and sufficiency of Christ as our high priest. That's told to us in the gospel, the message of great salvation. That's what Hebrews is all about. At this point, they should understand then how to correctly interpret and apply the Old Testament scriptures in light of the fact that Jesus is now our high priest, but they can't do it. Their unwillingness to rest, notice this, this is extremely important. Their unwillingness to rest in the finished work of Christ has dulled their ability to properly hear and therefore properly interpret the word of God. That's what's at stake here. It's 5.11. Instead now in 6.1 and 2, they're obsessed with going over and over the elementary doctrine of what makes someone right with God. They're still thinking, maybe we need to mix law with grace because we need balance. The unbiblical word that everybody thinks is biblical. We need balance. And then, then you, you, there's a composite of how someone is finally made right with God. You, the, the, 
the havoc this is wreaking on the church. I, I, I saw a quote from a man that used to be my favorite preacher, favorite author in the world, and he was writing a foreword to a book, and he said, um, notice that the, the, the book is called, I think, Faith Alone, which I don't know why it's called that, because that's not what it's about. But he, he says, you know, this pastor said, um, notice that he says you're, you're, you're justified by faith alone. You don't finally enter heaven by faith alone, though. That requires works. Yeah, that's heresy. That's what happens when you think and think and think and think about you and your performance. You start to nuance the Bible so much that you undo it. Don't do that. Don't listen to people that do that. Please. They're not ready for solid food. Their, their obsession with their performance, with, with, with wanting to obey the law, is stunting their growth. Right? They, they can only handle milk. They're not ready for solid food. They gotta keep being given milk so that they can grow up. It's, it's, it's bad if they're not ready for solid food because they've been believers, it seems, for a while. So they should be ready for solid food at this point. It's not good, it's not good to stay a baby if you're alive. Beloved, we, can, we can't stay in a state of infancy, constantly unsure of whether or not Jesus is sufficient for us. You can't live there. I can't live there. That leads to unbelief. It's what the Bible tells us. It leads to unbelief, all-out denial of Jesus. And we have to believe in him to be saved. 5.14 tells us we should know what is evil. We should know it would be evil to consider returning to the Levitical priesthood, to obedience to the law, to be right with God for our assurance. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we realize just what that is. That's evil. That's a, that's a denial of the power of the cross is what that is. So, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ in 6, 1 and 2 and go on then to maturity. He talked about in 514. Let us move on from the elementary doctrine. That is the foundational basic doctrine about how a person is made right with God in Jesus Christ to Right? In other words, the fight is not to stay back there wondering what actually makes me right with God. That's elementary. You should know that on day one. That's how you got saved. But let's go on to knowing just how sufficient this Jesus that saved me really is. Right? That's the goal. That's the pursuit of the Christian life. I wish curriculum and books and conferences would push that instead of us. Right? They've been doing that for years. It's not helping anyone because we're still doing it. That's what he's driving at here. The doctrine of Jesus as a high priest. That's the solid food he wants to teach. But had to interrupt here because they're still on the milk of how can I know for sure that I'm made right with God? What do I believe? How can I actually rest Let's go on to maturity. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. How you get saved. You don't need to keep doing that. You don't need to keep getting saved, right? Instructions about washings. What makes you clean? His blood makes you clean. The laying on of hands. How you, that is how you receive the Holy Spirit. That, that happens when we're born again. By grace through faith. It's not accomplished through works. The resurrection of the dead. 
That's guaranteed to those who believe. And eternal judgment, that's reserved for unbelievers, not for believers. Not only are all these things in verse 2 elementary aspects of the doctrine of Christ, they all recall. Now, in context, now you've got to remember what we've read. All these recall Old Testament images because the way they're being tempted to turn their backs on Jesus is to return to Judaism. It's to return to the Old Covenant system, to the Old Covenant way of relating to God before Christ came as the fulfillment of all of it, especially the priesthood. Right? That, that's addressed all throughout Hebrews. We know what the problem is. That's all he addresses. But the gospel is clear. Remember, what's the letter proclaiming? The word spoken once and for all by Christ. That's a clear and final word. We are made right with God by the work of Jesus as our high priest on our behalf. When we place our faith in him as our only hope and savior, we are washed. We are redeemed. We're accepted forever. He gives us his Holy Spirit. We are his new people. He will raise us up to eternal life. End of story. Period. Full stop. That's what Jesus does. Don't need to ask after hearing all that, then, well, then what does Jesus do for me? Right? You see, here, here's another bottle. Let's, let's do it again. Right? Rest in this, he's saying, and get to the business of knowing him. Stop standing outside the fence when you've been invited into the house to enjoy the feast. Stop it. Stop wondering, but but I, I don't know. Have you believed in Jesus? Yeah. Go in and eat. Right? Go in and eat. There's a place for you at the table. Jesus said it. Go in and eat. Stop standing out here like you don't belong at the table. You believe in him. You're his. Go on. The images are beautiful here. Mine the depths. Mine the depths of his priesthood for you now. Don't stay on the fringe thinking, yeah, but I mean... I know you got to believe in Jesus to be saved, but shouldn't we still wash our hands before we eat so that we're clean, so that we're actually clean? Or insert whatever part of the law we like to cherry pick that we still have to keep in order to be right with God. Shouldn't we still do that, though? You're not under the law. I know, but shouldn't we still? Okay, here's, here's more milk. You, you're not ready for solid food yet. Right? So that, that, that's the burden here. Again, it's, it's not, that's not just bad biblical interpretation. It's evil now that Jesus is here for us. And we should be able to recognize that, the author is saying. The longer we've been in the faith, so to speak. It's hard to tell that that's evil, that you're obsessed with your performance because it looks so religious, right? It looks like you take it seriously, more seriously than others. It seems more responsible. It seems like wisdom to focus on what we do so that we don't mess anything up and dishonor him. But remember 5, 13 to 14. The more our soul feasts by faith on the solid food of his sufficiency for us, the less these elementary things will plague us, beloved. When a lack of rest in Christ will eat away at you, until you doubt his sufficiency. And finally, if the Bible is true, deny it altogether. And that is suicide. It's spiritual suicide. 
We must grow in our reliance on Jesus as our sufficient high priest in verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. A person will not be permitted by God to move on to maturity if they refuse to eat the solid food of the sufficiency of Jesus as a high priest for us. They will not be permitted to grow. Because that's unbelief. Right? We call it responsibility. The Bible calls it unbelief. If the performance of your high priest stands before God for you, why do you work? Not saying you shouldn't work. I'm asking, why do you work if it's finished? It's evil in verse 14 to rely on your work as the security of your salvation. God swore in his wrath in Psalm 95, which again is quoted back in chapters 3 and 4, that people who didn't believe would not enter his rest. What if they were good workers? Doesn't matter. You don't believe, you don't enter the rest. There's no moving upward for those who don't believe. For, because in verse 4, notice how that verse begins. Notice how verse 4 begins. It's not an isolated thought. If, If verse 4 begins with because, for, that means, in context, we're going to tease this out. Whatever people like he's about to describe in these verses were doing with what they were hearing, it wasn't saving faith. It wasn't believing it with faith. Look at 4 to 8. Let's read 4 to 8. 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again. That's what's impossible. To restore them again to repentance. Since, what are they doing? Why is it impossible to return? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For... Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Faith receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. In the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4. Jesus describes there those that appear to believe for a while. They appear to believe for a while. In other words, there is ground, think seven and eight, soil. There's ground that initially receives the truth of God's word. The rain goes in with great joy. With great joy they receive it. But there's no root. It's not hearing with faith, which is what he addressed in three and four. Right? We're broken up by Sundays and chapter numbers. This is one coherent letter. They endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution comes, they fall away. Right? Or they hear the word, but the cares of this world, as Jesus says, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, enter in and choke the word in them, and it proves unfruitful. And here in verses 7 and 8, when rain falls on the ground, something grows out of it. It just isn't always crops. 
Sometimes the ground produces thorns and thistles. In other words, faith is produced in some. Thorns and thistles are produced in others. But both responded to the, to the rain, right? In other words, there is an initial or temporary believing of God's word that doesn't last, whose fruit is not saving faith in Christ. That's not why they believe it initially. That's what was happening in 4 to 6. Let's, let's read it again. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. See all the all the food metaphors here? Taste, you see all that? And then have fallen away in six to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Everything hinges on that phrase. Everything. Why? Since, what are they doing? Right? They're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What would you do with a priest whose sacrifice you thought was insufficient? You'd keep doing it. Why is it that when those that didn't truly believe finally fall away, why is it that they can't come back? Because God cuts off his grace? No. Because Jesus cannot be received where Jesus is not believed on as Savior. Right? It's, it's, it's elementary, he's saying. Where the sufficiency of his person and his work are held in contempt? Where he would in the heart of one who doubts him. See, th- th- this is what's at stake in doubt. When in the heart of one who doubts him, he would have to be crucified over and over and over again for that person. Every single time they messed up. Why? Because in their heart, his one-time sacrifice wasn't sufficient. So you got to nail him to the cross every time you blow it. Or at least you think you've blown it enough that you got to do it again. See how subjective it is? It's just such contempt for the sufficiency of Jesus as a high priest to not trust his sacrifice as sufficient. Man, the Bible doesn't play about how great Jesus is as a savior. If, if, if you get, if we get so close to embracing the gospel that we've tasted it, it's had an effect on us, but then we will finally refuse to believe it. That is not unbelief because of ignorance. That is willful unbelief and contempt for Jesus and his work. It's the same thing as coming to the edge of the promised land, just like the people back in chapters 3 and 4, it's the same thing as coming to the very edge of the promised land and not being allowed to enter because you didn't actually believe anything God really said. Those people experienced the exodus. They were there when the Red Sea parted. They ate the manna, they tasted the bread, they tasted the quail, they were a part of all of it. But they did not believe. How did their unbelief come out in the wilderness wanderings? In constant contempt for God's message and God's word. So they never entered God's rest, they never did. Oh great, there's no water, you know what, why don't we just go back to Egypt, fool? 
Right? Just over and oh, it's manna again, it's plant again. You see? It's contempt. That, that's God's word they're spitting on and complaining against. That's God's word they hate. All, all, all the descriptors here, all of them, once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness. They all recall the experience of the wilderness generation after the exodus. They were so close to all of it, so close. They experienced all of it, but they didn't believe what they were hearing and seeing with faith. So this text This text does not exist in isolation. Beloved, this is not a little paragraph that exists in a vacuum about people losing their salvation because they sin too much or because they struggle and they finally reach the point of no return because they just did that one too many times. I don't know how I ever got saved with with, with what I heard growing up. I, I don't know how I'm here because that's what I heard all the time. So I, I believe in God's grace with everything that I am. I have no other choice. I don't preach this because I think it's right primarily. I preach it because I need it so bad. It has to be true. I tell you that with a clean conscience. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a text about people outside the church. It's not what this text is about. Right? Again, it's not about people that struggle with their sin. It's, it's a polemic. It's a argument from within against a very specific line of thinking. And that line of thinking is, after all I've heard, I, I just don't think Jesus is efficient enough of a high priest for me. So I, I need to go back under the law in order to be sure of my salvation. Salvation is found ultimately in my obedience to the law. It's found under the old covenant system where Aaron was a high priest. I need to, to do those things again and follow all those details again. That is why all the language here recalls old covenant realities because that's what he's talking about. That's what's threatening them. That's milk. It's, it's not talking. This text is not talking about the normal everyday struggle that is common to all of us. This text is not here to terrify you into stopping to believe, right? It's, it's so that you won't do that. It's talking about a person thinking if they go back under the law, they'll have assurance of the salvation through their obedience to it. It's a denial of Jesus. It's apostasy. It's apostasy. Beloved, there's there's no issue with someone saying, I desire to honor and glorify God with my life. I, I, I want to know his word. I, I want to know him in prayer. I want to follow the Bible. That's not the issue. Where the problem comes is if you say that those things are the reason you think you're right with God. And if I asked you that, you'd say, no, I don't think that's the reason I'm right with God. But but how do you treat them? Jesus was never concerned with what people said. He was looking at the heart. If, if, if you say that those things are the only way you can have assurance is by, well, based on what I do, that, that's how I know I, that's how I find my assurance because my life has changed. Then I'm terrified for you. Terrified for you. Hebrews is terrified for you. If I ask you where you find the confidence for your salvation, 
and you start telling me about yourself, I'm terrified for you. And I think that's what the passage is saying. My anchor is the sufficiency of Christ as my high priest and having and everything that having him is that entails for me. That's where my assurance comes from. It's his work for me that saves me. It's not my work for him that saves me. We have to believe this. From like Sunday school when they're little babies forward. They've got to hear this. We've got to hear this. We've got to hear it. This all has to do with not maturing into the solid food of the sufficiency of Jesus as a high priest for us in verse 1 and verse 4. There's a context to 4 through 6. What's affecting them and threatening them is not their daily struggle with sin. What's affecting them and threatening them and pulling them away is the lure of works-based salvation that comes from their sinful flesh. That's 3, 12, and 13. That's where the threat is. Under the law, the system says the one who does them shall live by them. The idea of that as a way to be made right with God, that's pulling them back. We want to control it. Control is a lot easier than faith. If I can hit the bed every night with my boxes checked, I'll feel safe. That system is pulling them back. Yes, I'd rather find my security in my works. Thank you very much. I'm in control of that. That's what this passage is addressing. It's, it's not general. He's saying very specifically to this group of people, you've been hearing grace. You've been hearing the message of great salvation. You've tasted of it. And yet you want to go back under the law. Doesn't that, that, again, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, but it's the same thing Paul was saying. I'm, I'm just, who bewitched you? Like who, 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 who made you think this? You want to go back under the law? You want Aaron as your high priest? His, his, don't you understand what you're doing? Jesus would just have to keep being crucified for you again and again. You're going to keep needing sacrifices because you're never going to be good enough. Doesn't, his, doesn't, don't the scriptures show that? Why don't you read the scriptures, he says? Who succeeded? Who did it under that system? It's, it's, it's blasphemous. You, it's holding Jesus in contempt to say, yeah, I, you still need what I can throw in. This text is extremely specific to refusing to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus as a high priest. Look, you, you can be a part of the church. You can be a part of the community of faith. You can sing all the songs, hear all the messages, give all your offerings, go to all the classes, all of it. But if... When the gospel rains down on your heart, you reject Jesus as sufficient to save you. You just keep rejecting him and rejecting him and rejecting him, thinking you will have to contribute your works to secure your salvation. You are holding Jesus Christ in contempt. And if you hold Jesus in contempt, it's impossible to come to him for salvation. Why would you want to? Right? It's impossible to be saved if you hold Jesus Christ in contempt. If you move away from Jesus, there's no road to salvation for you. That's what the text is telling us. So, now now listen, because that, that's scary. It's scary. I'm not being funny. It's a scary text. So you, when you bump up against scary or confusing 
in God's precious holy word, you know what you need to do? Keep reading. Keep reading. Because where the sword lays open, the hand heals. This text could make everyone in his audience and everyone here this morning that is saved doubt their salvation because deep down inside they struggle with doubt. We wonder, man, I wonder almost every day. Let me ask you a question. If you hated somebody and you would cut them off and out of your life, because you hated them, would you warn them of impending danger? God loves these struggling people. And he loves you. Beloved, if they had passed over into some point of no return, what in the world is the letter for? Why write it? They haven't passed. The author just wants them to believe in Jesus. You refuse that, you aren't saved. That, that's, that, that's elementary. But if you embrace it, you are saved. Full stop. So stop doubting. Get off the milk. Have the stake of his sufficiency and rest in it. Look at 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, the word of God is so good. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. <laughs> things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to have the, to show the same earnestness. There it is. Okay. To show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author knows they aren't going to be the kind of people described in verses 4 through 6. <laughs> they, they aren't dead. They aren't apostates. They're struggling. They're struggling. These, look, these things are hard to believe. Right? You, you can raise your voice enough and use enough inflection in a sermon to make people think you really believe. Yeah, I, I, I do. But I mean, this, this is hard. Faith is hard. Right? It, it, it's hard to believe this, that, that all of this is real. It's hard to cling to the sufficiency of Jesus. In light of our own struggles, first of all, with sin, it's hard to keep going back. The weight and threat of the world, it's hard. But Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds. He, he doesn't snuff out smoldering wicks. These are people that serve the saints. But when I read this, I thought of you. I thought of you, Moundsville, when I read that verse. Of you have treated me and my family, how you treat each other. Your constant willingness and desire to love and serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. I love that about our church. I love it. 
The author says all that, all that earnest desire you show and have to serve one another, it's beautiful, but channel it into a deeper assurance and hope about the sufficiency of Jesus for you. You see what he's saying? You see how precious this passage is for people? He doesn't want them to be sluggish anymore, lagging because of the milk. You need more than milk if you're going to grow. Does a body good. It doesn't do everything. Timid and unsure. They're timid and unsure. And he's saying you belong to Christ. Imitate your ancestors in the faith. The ones who through faith in God and patience in the midst of a crooked world held on to him. And gained everything he promised them when they entered his rest. The Christian life is a life of faith and patience. Because the promise is inherited by faith and patience. They're doing works, yes, but that's not where the confidence to inherit the promises comes from. It comes from faith. It comes from patience. Patience with what? Probably you. Because we just, we don't get it right enough to find assurance, or God forbid, we do. Both are confidence in the flesh, or seeking confidence in the flesh. So we should imitate those who have lived that way. Those who have lived with faith and patience in God. People like Abraham. So he's given them one of the scariest warnings in all of scripture about the irrevocable danger of treating the sufficiency of Jesus as a high priest for us with contempt by refusing to believe in him regardless of how much we hear how sufficient he is. Now he gives them the anchor to keep them from ever doing it. God is not going to go back on his promise to save all of those who simply believe in him. He's not going to go back on that promise. That's the function of the latter part of this text. right? Nothing we read undoes the promise to save eternally those who believe. What kind of salvation is Jesus the source of? Eternal salvation. Four through six is not the author coming in and say, by the way, I didn't mean that up there. I didn't mean it. It's on you, really. Right? That's not what he's saying. So at the end of this heavy warning, the focus switches from those who are called to live with faith and patience to the God they are called to have faith and patience in. Look at 13 through 16 quickly. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's a promise. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, you say, he didn't, he didn't patiently wait. He and his wife tried to, that scheme with Hagar. What do you mean he patiently waited? Yeah. In the midst of his rotten wickedness, somewhere down in there, he was saying, I know this is up to you. So take heart, struggling believer. This text is not trying to kill you. It's trying to heal you. See how Abraham looks when you look back over history and Jesus is laid down over the top of him? He looks like the perfectly faithful person. Because of Christ. That's how you look to the Father. Right? You believer. That's how you look. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. God promised Abraham that he would give him offspring. He promised Abraham a son in a line. And God can't appeal to any higher authority than himself when he wants to say, this. I'm going to keep this promise. Because a higher authority doesn't exist, so he swore by himself to Abraham that he would keep that promise. And the author quotes Genesis twenty-two seventeen here. After Abraham had almost sacrificed his son Isaac, 
Abraham received what he was promised. God swore by God that he was going to give it to him. Now, the author's, the whole point of that is the author's saying, now, if human oaths give a sense of certainty, at least to a promise, if signing a contract here means something for human beings, how much more should we feel certain about something when it's God who makes the oath? That's the point here. I hope you see what he is doing for the souls of these saints and for you and I through the Holy Spirit. Right, right after that horribly terrifying warning, what, what's he doing? And why is he doing it if they're apostates? Because they aren't. Right, it's the same audience at the end of the text as it was at the beginning of the text. The same audience. Look at 17 through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So when you hear this text this morning and you fly to him for refuge because you know you, you don't measure up, rest. Just rest. 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now we're back to high priest talk. It's what the oath is good for. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see that bookend there? The new covenant people of God are the heirs of the promise God made to believing Abraham. We are the product of the multiplication of God's promise to him. That's Galatians 3.29. It's Hebrews 6. And God has done for us what he did for Abraham. He has guaranteed that we will receive his promise in Christ. We will enter his rest so that by two, so he's guaranteed by two unchangeable things for us. His promise and his oath to keep it. We might have the hope that enables us to live with faith and patience until we inherit the promises. That's, that's what the text is doing. It doesn't sound like it's trying to run anybody out of the church, does it? He promised he would save, and then he gave his son to be the high priest of Abraham's offspring, the church. My word to God is not my oath. Jesus Christ is my oath. Today, Forever, always. This, beloved, is the sure and steadfast anchor for my soul. A hope that doesn't live in here. A hope that lives behind the curtain. In the very presence of God. Which means no matter what I do here, it cannot be moved. This is the strong encouragement to hold fast to my hope. The sufficiency of Jesus is a high priest for me. We don't have another source of encouragement or hope but Jesus. My anchor this morning holds, so does yours, in the true holy of holies where moth and rust cannot corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal. The next time we sing the solid rock, you sing it with all your heart. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My anchor holds within the veil and nothing can move it. Nothing can move it. That is why I have hope. 
That is why I can live with faith and patience while walking through a world where I continue to struggle. If I look in the mirror, I don't have any confidence. But I know it's not right to want any. I hope I don't forget that the next time I look in the mirror for assurance. That's why I can live with faith and patience in a world of turmoil and trouble and changing circumstances and the threat of the future and even persecution when and if it comes because God has given me his word and sealed it with the oath of his son, my high priest forever, my anchor that nothing can dislodge from the depths of the sea of God's power and God's grace. So it's impossible to be saved if you hold Jesus in contempt. You know what else is impossible in this text? It's impossible in verse 18 for God to break his promise to save everyone who flees their works and performance to find refuge for salvation in Christ alone. God doesn't lie. If you believe and enter his rest, it's done. This anchor is sure and this anchor is steadfast. So this morning, Drop it off the side of the ship of your life, your soul, your hopes, and let it sink into the sea of God's salvation. Because when it hits earth and lodges there, no storm, nothing will ever move it. This is the anchor that holds. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Let's pray. The front will be open if you need to come. Didn't realize it was 12.15 already. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that if you want to work on souls this morning, you'll do it. Give us faith and patience. Show us our sufficient high priest. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. standing here or not so I trust the Lord I, I, I'd like to just very quickly call up if, if she's here she may have gone down with the kids because I did not mention it to her parents that's my fault or, or is Kenzie still here and Corey is, are they down to the, 
She's downstairs. Okay, I'm so sorry. You guys. And I meant to mention when I, I need to remember this to mention the parents of these children when they're baptized. Uh, Kenzie is Corey and Aaron Lyseski's daughter, Stephen Maryland's granddaughter. So I have the, her certificate uh, that I'll give to you. I wish she was here. I should have thought of that. Let, let me let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. All right. Father, thank you once again for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may you stir in every heart to run to him, to flee to him for refuge, because no matter what has happened before that point, no matter what, everyone that flees to refuge for refuge to Jesus is saved eternally. Such is our high priest. And so in his name we pray. Amen.